Good morning. Did I turn myself? There we go. Welcome, everyone, uh, to the well, and welcome to those who are worshiping upstairs uh, at the Well Cafe. Uh, my name is David. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm thrilled to welcome you if this is your first time uh, here with us at First Methodist Mansfield. I've been on vacation for the last couple weeks, and so last night when I started the message, I forgot to say welcome. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm a little out of practice, so I've had one shot already, so I think I'll do a little bit better this morning, but uh, glad to, to be back with you again. Had a refreshing time away, and uh, it, is, it is always good to come home. And uh, being back in the office and getting back to the house is, is one thing, but to be back in worship with you is, is quite another for me. So it's, it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 12 uh, is where we're going to be today. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Uh, the good news I have for you is that you, if you forgot your Bible this morning, or if you don't know where Romans 12 is... We're actually going to be looking at this chapter of Scripture for the next eight weeks. So you can go home this week and practice finding Romans 12. Come back next week. Uh, You've you've got eight weeks to figure that out. We're going to be looking, uh, we're going to be very focused in the next eight weeks as we move through this brand new series uh, and looking at this particular chapter of the Bible. And I've been looking forward to this series. I'm excited about it because I think what we're going to talk about over the course of these eight weeks, it is a long series Uh, is going to be a real blessing to you in your life. That's been my prayer for you as we've approached uh, the beginning of this new series. Uh, But before I dive in there, I want to tell you a little bit more about this week. We had United Mission Week. You've already seen some of that uh, in the beginning of worship, heard heard people talk about that. We had over 250 youth and adults who were here this week uh, doing service projects uh, in our community and in surrounding communities. Uh, It is one of the highlights of the entire year for our student ministry program. Uh, It's a highlight for us to get to see not only what our kids do as they sweat in the hot sun and serve uh, people in tremendous ways, but also when they come together for worship and and to see kids' hearts open in a way that they don't always open throughout the rest of the school year uh, because of the experience that they're having in United Mission Week. And just to give you a little bit more sense of what they did and what they focused on, they talked about being known by God. I want to show you uh, this this video. I know everything. That a blue whale's heart weighs as much as Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. I know everything. Sports. Sports. Basketball. Basketball. Football. Volleyball. Fishing. Swimming. Climbing. Baseball. Soccer. Soccer. Video games. Good baseball player and regular old football player. Like, one of the best, obviously. I know all the words to Journeys Don't Stop Believing. Dubstep. Ballet. My endless love. On Broadway. I like to eat a lot. I know how to keep it real. I'm Batman. I know that this week's going to be awesome. I'm going to meet lots of people. Make new friends. I'm excited for Mission Week. I know I'm tall. I'm kind of shy, and I love to read. I'm a little bit nerdy. Funny. Artistic. Totally obsessed with school. I like to think that I'm cool. Not the average person. I know I'm boring, a crazy person, and weird. I'm camera shy. I know a lot about animals. And I'm allergic to dogs and cats. Very, very, 
very enthusiastic. Probably a little bit too loud sometimes, but I can make a change. I love a challenge. and I'm a hard worker, motivated. Kind-hearted. Good-natured. Responsible. Good listener. Who knows what's going on. Happy. And someone to look up to. All the time. I know I'm loved. By my parents, uh, especially my adoptive side. My family. For who I am and what I do. I love Jesus. I'm a member of the world's best youth group. What we are doing here is bringing that out to others. I know if you want to get close to Jesus, serve people that he loves. Um, it's fun being out here. Trying to help my community. Like what we're doing today, build a house. Like organizing things for people. Like construction and giving people food. Working here to help others. Seeing people smile after I help them. I really hate these wasps that are flying around everywhere. I know I'm tired and hot and sweaty, but it will all be worth it. Even though it's hard. I know that I'm supposed to be here this week. Helping my neighbors out every day because I want to. I would like to be known as a leader, strong and intelligent. For being original. An awesome helper. And for being nice. For spreading love. As a disciple of Christ. To be out of inspiration to overcome. As a girl who weighs under 100 pounds and can still do it just as much as others. And a trustworthy person. Who you can count on and who will never give up. That loves God with all their heart. A motivator. And who inspires others. Not able to help themselves. Whether we're friends or not. Making a difference. For the impact I have on the world. Might sound corny, but if. Loving God. Through uh, every aspect and adventure in life. When somebody needs help. We have problems. All the mission groups. Generosity. To put the work back into the community and not just take everything for granted. By the positive changes that we're making. In my life. On mission trip. In Texas, America. Everywhere and anywhere I can. Help my country. That everybody wants to have. To make my family proud, make myself proud. and Love God, love others, and serve the world. Everything's awesome. Will you join me in expressing thanks to our kids for this week? Thursday night, they had a closing worship service, and they invited everyone to come, had a block party outside, food trucks, and, and lots of fun, and, and uh, worship was at 8, but I wanted my, my kids to come, so I told my wife, I want us to go, I, I want my daughter to see that she's in fifth grade. So she's there, and she's, uh, she's listening to the band play, and Holly Brower, who helps lead our, our Well Cafe service, um, uh, led worship this week, and a lot of the songs that she, were, she was doing were songs that my daughter knows from, from dance, and so I really wanted her to see this, and she leaned over to me uh, in the very beginning, and she said, Dad, when I'm old enough, can I go on Mission Week? I said, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. What a blessing it is to see our kids uh, serving our community, doing incredible things, but also to see those even younger inspired by that and, and wanting to, to grow up to be just like, like these kids. That's, that's really cool. That happens because of so many people who give their time for Mission Week. Uh, cooks, uh, those who open up their homes for kids to take showers. Boy, we really appreciate that because they smelled so bad. Um, we, for, for the adults who gave up, for, for many of them, uh, a week of vacation 
This was vacation to come to, to sweat in the hot sun with them, uh, to sleep on the floor, to experience aches in their body that they didn't know were possible, all to support these kids and to be a part of that. I want to thank you uh, for that if you were one of those volunteers. Uh, I know it made a difference in the lives of our kids because it, it made a difference in my life when I was at a similar stage uh, in, in my journey. So we're going to start this new series, and the first thing I'm going to do is take this name tag off because I can tell I'm blinding some people. But anyways, we're going to start this new series, and, and I want to frame for us what this journey is, is going to be about. I told you it's eight weeks long. We're going to be looking at one chapter of the Bible. And so what I want to do is just help you understand where we're going, what our journey is going to be about. And I want to do that by sharing with you two stories. And the first story I want to share with you is my own story. So at 16, I became a Christian. Uh, now, I was raised in the church. Uh, my dad is a United Methodist pastor like me. He still serves today. He's got a church in Arlington. And so as a child, there were really three places that I was at all times. I was home, I was at school, or I was at church. My family still lives that way today. That's, that's been my entire life's journey. I don't know what it's like to not go to church every seven days. I mean, I've never lived anything but that. And yet, there was still a time in my own life where I felt like I had to make a decision to make my parents' faith my own faith. That was a critical time for me. Now, now depending on your tradition, there are lots of different words uh, that we use to describe what that decision is all about. So some people might say that, that that was the moment in my life when I became a Christian. Some may say that that's the moment where I accepted Jesus into my heart. Some may say that, well, that's the moment that you prayed the sinner's prayer. You said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I want you to come into my life. I want my life to be about you. Uh, some, some may describe it as beginning a journey of faith or becoming a disciple of Jesus. Or some might say, David, that was the night that you got saved. I don't care what you call it. You can call it whatever you want. You can use whatever language that you want. When I was 16 and I made that decision for me, the way I thought of it was this was the day that I became a Christian. A word that literally means a follower of Jesus. That, that's what it meant for me at 16 years old. Now you might assume that someone who had been raised in church, someone who'd been there every seven days, someone who really killed at Bible drills when I was you know, a young kid in second and third grade. I mean, I was impressive at that age. You would assume that at that point in my life when I said, yes, I signed up, I prayed the prayer, whatever you want to call it, that I would know exactly what that meant that I would be ready to go and I would know exactly what the rest of my life, uh, what, what that would mean for the rest of my life. But I don't think that was the case. Looking at it from today, from the vantage point of, of where I am in my life now, I'm not sure I really knew what I was signing up for. I'm not really sure I knew what it would mean for the, for the rest of my life. I thought that this decision would immediately lead to radical transformation in my life. But those are not the words that I would use to describe those first few years of living my life as a Christian. I, I half thought that, that I, when I said these words, something magical was going to happen in my heart and life, and suddenly thoughts would be different, attitudes would be different, behaviors would be different, that somehow, like Tinkerbell, was going to show up and make me into a new person. That's, that was sort of my expectation, but that's not what happened for me. 
And when I look back on that, on that point in my life and those, those years that followed that decision, I, I can look at and see a couple reasons why that was. The first was, I was young and dumb. I mean, I was just at a, a time in my life where, where things were changing. I had no idea who I was, what 16-year-old does. I was still figuring out what, what, what made up David, what I was good at, where I fit. I was, I was in that same stage that, that many people go through during those teenage years of just trying to find some solid ground where I could, I could build my life and say, this makes sense. I didn't know any of those things. I, I, I had no identity at that time. I was in that really critical time of change and transition and, and trying to figure out who I was and what I was going to be in the world. And I know that was part of it, a part of the, the attitude and the thoughts and the behaviors that drove me in those, in those early years was, was so much about trying to discover who I was and where I fit in the world. But there's another reason. There's another thing that, again, from, from the vantage point of where I am today and looking back, I can see that there was something else I was lacking. And this is what it was. I didn't have an adequate answer to the question, what's next after the saving? So again, I was raised in church. I'd, I'd, I'd done almost everything that you could do. I mean, I was an all-star at vacation Bible camp there every week for youth group. But I didn't know what was next after the saving. Now, what I've discovered in, in the 14 years that I've served as a pastor is that that point of confusion for me is a common one for people. We sort of have this sense, we, we know that saying yes to Jesus, praying the prayer, again, all sorts of different language that we use to describe how faith begins. We have this understanding that that is a pretty big deal, a conversion experience, if you will, a, a moment where you say, I'm in, or, or at least a period of time where you grow in your conviction that this is what you want, you, what you want your life to be about. It may not be one particular moment, but a, a period of time where your, your faith, your conviction deepens. We know that's important, that you need to do that, but often we struggle with understanding what's after that. What are the next steps of faith? Most of us if we've said yes to Jesus, if we've, if we've signed up for this thing, if we would identify ourselves as a Christian, we could probably articulate what we have been saved from. But fewer of us could articulate what we have been saved for. What is the Christian life really all about? What is this journey of faith really all about? And what's next for us after the saving? That is the question that we're going to look at over the course of the next eight weeks. Is, is, is understanding that, that making a decision for Jesus is a huge, huge part of our faith and our life. It's, it's something that we want for, for everyone who's a part of this family of faith, that they would make a decision for Jesus. But, but more importantly, that they would know what comes next and how you begin to engage the life that God dreams that you will one day find. That's what we want to talk about in the next eight weeks, is what's next after the saving. 
So I told you I've been on vacation. Let me just tell you what vacation is like for me. Uh, vacation for me has to include three things. These are the three things that make vacation good. If any of these three things are missing, I, I sort of feel like I, I miss out on the renewing, refreshing aspect that vacation is supposed to have for all of us. I don't know if you know that, but that's what vacation is supposed to be for. So keep that in mind as you're planning your next vacation. If you come back more tired than you left, than when you left, you've done something wrong. You haven't done vacation well. You've failed at vacation. These are the three things I need. On vacation, I want time with my wife. I want time with my kids. And I want time with my books. Those are the three things I want. I want time with my kids, time with my wife, and, and, and time with my books. I love to read. Reading is, for me, refreshing and renewing, particularly uh, international espionage novels. I mean, just stuff that I don't normally have time for, something that I can get, get lost in. I mean, that's what I really, really look forward to. I like to get out of town. I, I found that, for me, that's part of being refreshed and renewed, is removing myself from the patterns of life that I'm normally in every single day. That's just how I'm wired. You may not be the same way, but the staycation is nice. I get some things done around the house, but I don't feel renewed and refreshed when I come back. So the the destination of where we go, I don't really care as long as it has those three things. Time with my wife, time with my kids, and and time just to read and and be refreshed in that way. And so one of the books that I read while I was away, uh, you may have heard of before. It's by Laura Hillenbrand. Uh, The book is called Unbroken. Uh, this was released in 2011. I'm assuming that many of you have, have already read this. Now, I know some of you are thinking, reading, gosh, oh, that sounds terrible. I don't want to. I mean, you haven't read a book since someone made you read a book. I mean, way back when. So if that's you and you're hearing about this book and you're thinking, I'm not going to read that book and I'm always talking about, the movie comes out this December, okay? <laughs> so just, so just keep, that, keep that in mind. But this was a book, I'd, I'd heard of this book before, I, several people had mentioned it to me, but I just, I'd never gotten it, never taken the time to read it, and so I picked it up before I left on vacation because I'd heard so many people talk about it. Uh, the, the subtitle of the book is A World War II Story of Survival, Resilience, and Redemption. The book is the story of Louis Zamperini. Uh, Louis was uh, an athlete who participated in the 1936 uh, Berlin Olympics. Uh, had a very wild childhood, uh, but, but discovered in his early teenage years that he could focus that energy and enthusiasm towards long-distance running. He was coached by his older brother, uh, became pretty outstanding at it, and had the opportunity to compete in the 1936 Olympics. Jesse Owens, a name you probably recognize, uh, was Louis' roommate uh, during that experience in Berlin. Uh, during World War II, Louis served as a bombardier uh, in a, on a B-24 in the Pacific Theater of World War II. And in May of 1943, while he was on a routine search for another plane that had gone missing in the Pacific Ocean, uh, Louis' plane experienced mechanical failure and crashed in the ocean. Uh, eight of the 11 members of the crew of that plane were killed on impact. Uh, Louis, uh, the pilot Alan Phillips, who was known to Louis as Phil, and Francis McNamara, a new recruit there with that crew, uh, all survived the crash with two rafts and limited supplies. Uh, They experienced uh, continual uh, attacks from sharks there in the ocean. Uh, On numerous occasions, they were shot at from Japanese planes flying overhead. Uh, But for 47 days... Louis 
uh, and Phil, the pilot, survived and eventually made it to land. Mac, or Francis McNamara, uh, died on day 33. They, they survived on nothing but rainwater and, and what fish they could capture from the ocean. In fact, they got so bold and so hungry that they actually caught uh, a shark, a small shark, and pulled it into the boat, killed it, uh, and, and was able to eat some of the fish that that, that shark had consumed. They, when, when they reached land, they each lost about 40 or 50 pounds, uh, and they were captured by the Japanese. Both of them spent the remainder of the war uh, in Japanese prison camps. And during that time, they continued to experience extreme malnutrition. And they also experienced almost total human degradation as they were tortured and beaten on an almost daily basis by, their, by the guards in those prisons. Particularly Louis, who was known to the Japanese as a famous American athlete. Louis experienced tremendous torture and beatings at the hand of a guard who, who was known as the bird, uh, a man who at the end of the war uh, was identified as one of the 40 most wanted war criminals after the Japanese surrendered. The fact that Louis was a famous athlete probably saved his life. It's, it's one of the reasons that he made it to the camp as they thought that maybe they could use Louis in propaganda later. But it was also what led him to experience consistent and awful beatings at the hands of the bird. Now, if you read this book, I'll just kind of warn you. When, when you get to about this point, you're going to want to stop reading the book. I mean, it's just one of those books that it takes something out of you to continue to read about these incredible obstacles that these two men faced and, and what they had to suffer at, at, at the hands of the Japanese while they were serving as, as their prisoners. And, and I got, got to about this point in the book on, on the evening of July 3rd. And I thought to myself, I just I want to set this book down for a little while. I need a break. This is just awful. I woke up on the morning of July 4th. Uh, we were in Houston at my in-law's house. My father-in-law handed me the Houston Chronicle uh, and, and the art, pointed out the article that, that announced that Louis had passed away the day before. And it compelled me to finish this story. Louis was eventually rescued uh, from his, his prison camp. Most of the prisoners who, who served in Japanese camps during the war never thought that they would survive the end of the war because over and over again they were threatened uh, that the Japanese would use the kill-all solution, killing all the prisoners before they were rescued. They, they knew, that the, those who were uh, serving in those prisons knew that the Japanese had used this on numerous other occasions as the American offensive continued to move towards Japan. As islands were vacated, the prisoners were executed and their bodies left behind. So none of the prisoners expected to escape, but when the war was over, the guards left for the hills uh, and, and those men were, were eventually rescued. And eventually, Louis was able to be reunited with his family, his mom and his dad, his sister and his brother. Now, at that point in the story, you, you have this sense of all the things that Louis has been rescued for. He was rescued, he was saved from 47 days lost at sea with, with no resources to, to sustain his body except for whatever water would fall from the sky and whatever fish they could, they could pluck from the ocean. Uh, he, he survived incredible living conditions while he was there in the prison. And, and he survived uh, incredible torture and pain that he suffered at the, at the hands of, of the guards, particularly the bird. But when Louis came home, Louis wasn't free. 
Louis didn't know how to deal with the psychological damage that he had experienced in those years that he had spent in those camps. Every night, his nightmares were filled again with the experiences of being beaten and tortured at the hands of the guards. And eventually, Louis discovered that the only way that he could ward off these dreams, the only way that he could experience any physical rest, was to drink himself until he passed out. And that was the only way he could keep the nightmares from coming back. Uh, eventually, Louis came to believe that the only way he was ever going to find peace in his life is, is if somehow he could make his way back to Japan and kill the man who had harmed him so severely. That all changed for Louis when he finally relented to his wife's demands and decided to go with her to a revival, a camp revival meeting in California where a young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham was, was sharing at the time. The only reason that Louis went, he had no interest in the religion. The only reason that he went is his wife had already left him. She was threatening divorce, and what she said to him was the only way that she was going to stay in this failing marriage is if Louis would agree to go to these revival meetings with her. He went the first night, he got to the end of the message, and, and when Graham asked every eye to close and head to bow, Louis got up and he left. And the next day again, his wife convinced him into going. And Louis went through the entire revival experience again. He got to the end. Uh, Graham finished his message and Louis got up, prepared to leave again. And this is how Hillenbrand describes that fateful moment. Louis pushed past the congregants in his row, charging for the exit. His mind was tumbling. He felt enraged, violent, on the edge of explosion. He wanted to hit someone. As he reached the aisle, he stopped. Cynthia, his wife... The rows of bowed heads, the sawdust underfoot, the tent around him, those all disappeared. A memory long beaten back, the memory from which he had run the evening before was upon him. Louis was on the raft. There was gentle Phil crumpled up before him, Max breathing skeleton, endless ocean stretching away in every direction, the sun lying over them, the cunning bodies of sharks waiting, circling. He was a body on a raft, dying of thirst, he felt words whisper from his swollen lips. It was a promise thrown at heaven, a promise he had not kept, a promise he had allowed himself to forget until, this ju until just this instant. If you will save me, I will serve you forever. And then standing under a circus tent on a clear night in downtown Los Angeles, Louis felt rain falling. It was the last flashback he would ever have. Louis let go of Cynthia and turned towards Graham. He felt supremely alive and he began walking. This is it, said Graham. God has spoken to you. You come on. Decades later, Louis would surprisingly discover that the bird, the man who had tortured him, had survived the war and was still living in Japan. He'd actually been back to Japan after uh, his conversion to Christ to, to preach to war criminals who were imprisoned there in, in Japan, to talk about forgiveness with them. And when he was there, he was told that the bird had committed suicide. But decades later, he discovered that that wasn't the case. And when he found that out, he sent to him this letter. This is what he said. As a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. 
Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God, through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals at Tsugama Prison. I asked then about you and was told that you had probably committed suicide, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Now, I told you that for 14 years I've, I've served as a pastor, and during that time I've done so with the conviction that the foundation of the gospel, the good news uh, of this book, is grace. The unmerited favor of a God who loves us more than we can ever imagine, and the invitation we have to participate in that radical expression of grace in the way that we share our lives to others. I live with the conviction that when we do that, when we participate in that grace, we are participating in rebuilding the world one life at a time. I, I believe that with every fiber of my being. That's what my life is about. That's what I have poured my life into. But I will confess to you that when I got to the end of this book, I was disappointed that the suffering that this man had inflicted on Louis, that, that he did not experience that same suffering as well. I wanted, after walking through this, this awful story and hearing everything that, he, that Louis went through, I wanted retribution. I wanted vengeance. I wanted this man to experience the same suffering that he had inflicted on so many. I did not, in my heart, want forgiveness and grace and letting go. And there's a part of me that at the end of the book, uh, even though I understand where that comes from and what that's about, and, and, and I affirm the, the idea of grace and forgiveness, there is still this part of me that, that hears this story and hears those words and, and wonders, how in the world is that possible to experience such incredible suffering in your life and to know that there is a person on the other side of it and, and to one day, by the grace of God, have the strength to say, I forgive you. I will not let your hate and vengeance and awful evil corrupt my own heart and my own life. I will instead turn to love. That's amazing, isn't it? It seems impossible. Now maybe today you, you know a measure of that transformation in your own life. Maybe you could articulate not only what you have been saved from, but you have a clear understanding of what you have been saved for. Maybe if I asked you the question, what's next after the saving, you could tell me an incredible story like Louis's story of a man or a woman whose life has experienced tremendous transformation that you have, in fact, become someone that you never thought you could be. What once was impossible has now become possible for you because of the way grace has worked in your life and in your heart and transformed you into a brand new person. Maybe you would tell me that story. Or maybe you would say, no, I still have a little bit of work to do. I, I, got, I, got, 
I, I hear that. I, I know what that's about. I know where that comes from. But that's beyond my comprehension. I still have much more to do in my own life and in my own heart. I, I, I need to know more about what's next after the Savior. And if that's you, you're invited to come back next week. If you're in the first category, you can take eight weeks off. But if that's you, I want to invite you back to to hear these words from Romans chapter 12, to hear these instructions that Paul offers as he expresses to us what the Christian life is all about, what the road looks like after the saving, where we are inspired to go and where God invites us to go once we make that initial commitment to faith. I believe that you and I have been saved to be disciples of Jesus. That you have not only been saved from things, but that you have been saved for a very important purpose. That there is a person that God believes that you can one day become. And I believe that at the end of your life, the most important thing to you will be how far you have progressed in becoming that person that God believes that you may one day be. Now, along the way, there are multiple opportunities to find distraction. There are multiple opportunities to pursue something differently. But I'm convinced that for all of us, at the end of our life, the thing that will matter more than anything else is how far we have progressed in that journey. And when someone gathers with your loved ones to hear the story of your life, to to understand what your life was all about, what will mean the most to them, what will be the most transformative for them, is how far you have come in that journey of becoming the person that God has called you to be. In other words, one of the most critical questions that every Christian must know the answer to is what's next after the saving. Otherwise, we may have a story that begins in a tremendous way that we can celebrate, but we'll have nothing at the end to look back on and say, look at how far I've progressed in becoming the person that God has called me to be. So I want you to be here the next eight weeks as we unpack this and we dream together of what God can do with a life that knows what's next after the Savior. So what I want to do in closing is just read to you these words from Romans chapter 12. I want you to hear them for the first time. I want you to spend some time this week just thinking about what these these words say. And then I'm going to close in a prayer for you and for our church as we begin this journey together. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, in light of all I have shared with you about God's mercies, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, a sacred offering that brings Him pleasure. This is your reasonable, essential worship. Do not allow this world to mold you in its own image. Instead, be transformed from the inside out by renewing your mind. As a result, you will be able to discern what God wills and whatever God finds good, pleasing, and complete. Because of the grace allotted to me, I can respectfully tell you not to think of yourself as being more important than you are. Devote your minds to sound judgment since God has assigned to each of us a measure of faith. For in the same way that one body has so many different parts, each with different functions, we too... The many are different parts that form one body in the anointed one, Jesus. Each one of us is joined with one another, and we become together what we could not be alone. 
since our gifts vary depending on the grace poured out on each of us, it is important that we exercise the gifts that we have been given. Love others well. And don't hide behind a mask. Love authentically. Despise evil. Pursue what is good as if your life depends on it. Live in true devotion to one another. Loving each other as sisters and brothers. Be first to honor others by putting them first. Do not slacken your faithfulness and hard work. Let your spirit be on fire, bubbling up and boiling over as you serve the Lord. Do not forget to rejoice, for hope is always just around the corner. Hold up through the hard times that are coming and devote yourselves to prayer. Share what you have with the saints so that they lack nothing. Take every opportunity to open your life and home to others. If people mistreat you or malign you, or we might say when that happens, bless them. Always speak blessings, not curses. If someone has cause to celebrate, join in the celebration. And if others are weeping, join in that as well. Work toward unity and live in harmony with one another. Avoid thinking you are better than others or wiser than the rest. Instead, embrace common people and ordinary tasks. Do not retaliate with evil, regardless of the evil brought against you. Try instead to do what is good and right and honorable as agreed upon by all the people. If it is within your power, make peace with all people. Again, my loved ones, do not seek revenge. Instead, allow God's wrath to make sure justice is served. Turn it over to Him. For the Scriptures say, Revenge is mine, I will settle all scores. But consider this bit of wisdom. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because if you, if you treat him kindly, it will be like heaping hot coals on top of his head. Never let evil get the best of you. Instead, overpower evil with the good. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we do give you thanks for grace grace that meets us at our point of deepest need, grace that meets us when we find ourselves alone and not knowing where to turn. We thank you, Lord, for the invitation you offer to us to participate in that grace. And in that process, Lord, a process that is fuzzy for us, in that process, Lord, to become something that we never thought was possible. Lord, I pray for each person that is here that you will give us the courage, Lord, over the course of this journey to see things about ourselves that maybe we would rather not see and to understand in a more full way, Lord, where you have called us to go and who you believe we can one day be. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.